Welcome to another episode of the Powerless to Powerful Recovery podcast. My name is Jason. I'm an alcoholic and addict. As always, our mission is to share experience, strength, and hope across multiple media platforms. The story of addiction and the road to recovery. We're not affiliated with Alcoholics Anonymous or any other 12-step based organizations or groups in any way. This is part two of the amazing journey with Justin Frakes. And, you know, we're just getting back into it. And again, if you listen to part one, how I ended part one to talk about the miracle that's about to take place, but it's all about the gift of pain and desperation. So part one ended off with him in Texas. And, you know, anytime and he comes back to Arizona and anytime we leave the state, it's usually for a pretty damn good reason, um, especially for drug addicts and alcoholics. It's not like we're doing so well. We're buying new houses and we're upgrading. And we're going to move out of stakes. We got this badass job opportunity. Usually it's because we got no other choice. Usually it's because the law's involved. So, Justin, why don't you talk about why you left Texas, how you ended up back in Arizona, which ultimately leads to your first prison sentence, state prison out here. What's that look like for you? So... You know, like I talked about in the past, me and Colleen were together at this point. We had a daughter. I couldn't take care of my daughter. I'm strung out on drugs. And Colleen borrows her dad's car. Uh, Be right back. Yep. And uh, we'll be right back. Right. Got the keys at this point. You know, I've stole money from her parents and, you know, did a lot of things that I'm not proud of. And I was ruining everything and ripping off everybody around me. And I was staying with my sister, Michelle, at this time. And, uh, you know, I remember sleeping on her couch. She was just trying to help me and give me a place to live and and do right by me. And I, she got me some work remodeling a lawyer's bathroom, right? Painting, doing some work. And the lady was paying me. I was cashing the checks, but somewhere along the line, um, you know, I ended up thinking it's a good idea. I'm going to steal a whole bunch of checks out of the middle of this book. And I end up draining this lawyer's bank account. They'll never know. They'll They'll never never know. know. I drain the whole bank account. Um, So now, you know, Colleen sitting in jail for the car because we never brought it back. It's stolen. And I'm sitting in jail 90 days because I steal a car stereo at, at this point. And, um, we get arrested. I didn't ever admit to stealing the car and Colleen says admitted to it. So she um, got some time in jail and they released me. So when they released me is the time when I stole the lawyer's checks while Colleen was still sitting in jail. So I never wanted to leave her. I always loved her. Um, always had always cared about her. But at this point, my addiction was too strong. I couldn't stop. And I was stealing and ruining everything around me. So the the police were looking for me and I had to leave Texas because at this point I'm about to get caught for everything that I did. Mm, And that ain't going to be good. And I want to just back up for one second. And we talk about you love her and you care for her. And, you know, love is an action word. And it took me a long time to really, truly figure that out. And if I ask anybody who's in the midst of their addiction, I'm talking full throttle addiction. And I, and I ask you, do you love your mom? Do you love your wife? Do you love your girlfriend? Do you love your daughter? Do you love your, your son? Do you love your brother, your sister, the people in your family? And you're going to tell me you do. You love them with every single thing. You mean that. I mean, you absolutely mean it. I'm not denying that. But the facts are is that our actions reflect the, the complete opposite. 
reflects that I hate everybody in my life because love is an action word, man. It takes a very long time for me personally, a very long time to truly understand. And I'm just grateful today. My actions reflect the love that I have. But in the midst of our addiction, we're just not capable of doing it. It's the same thing with your mom. She loved you. She was just incapable of showing it. And I know today that you guys have a great relationship. Shout out to mom. Absolutely. Um, and so you end up back in Arizona. You move in with mom this time. You come back out and find her. Or what happens yeah. when you come out here? I come back out and find mom once again, right? My go-to. And uh, I'm going to tell you, man, my mom lived in a real peculiar or peculiar <laughs> a crazy situation, right? <laughs> I couldn't say it, right? Um, but uh she stayed in a yard that was full of old buses and RVs and trailers and everybody in there was on meth tweaking. And um we're gonna make one big bus out of all the buses. Yeah, and uh, you know, at this point, you know, that's where I was living. I was living at the yard and my mom wouldn't even let me stay around at this point because I was so bad in my addiction. And I go on to um I mean, that's pretty bad when a whole yard full of tweakers don't want you around. That's bad, right? That's pretty bad, bro. I'm telling you. So nobody wants me around anywhere. I'm bad news anywhere I go. And at this point, I'm a really good car thief, man. So I'm starting to steal cars in Phoenix, all over Arizona, and uh, I'm making money doing it. And I meet my second baby mama um, at this point. And, you know... I had my kid Sebastian with her and we're both in our addiction, right? Um, she's stripping at the nightclub and I'm out hitting licks at night, right? So we're working together Which as a team. club? <laughs> at the penthouse. Oh, penthouse club? Uh, dude, oh, my the, bad, brother. The Eskimo hut? Oh, all that. those. Okay, let me know something then. <laughs> Candy store? Shout out to the dancers out there. Okay. My wife's going to hate that. But uh, so... You know, it just happened, man. And uh, I was still in my addiction. We were living in hotels and I ended up getting caught in a ring of stolen cars. So I'm the mastermind behind it. I get set up by undercover police. And now I help this baby mama catch a case with me. So I got busted for I got grand jury indicted for theft of means of transportation, trafficking in stolen property, burglary Uh of a vehicle. Oh, no. Um, Really, there was about 11 felonies on that case. They let me keep coming to them, selling them cars. And, we need another one, bro. Yeah, and they and man, they were tattooed, long hair, look like bikers, right? Look legit. They're helping me take parts off the cars and everything. Um, you know, so I never even knew they were cops until the point where they ended up busting me. And you know, I get my first adult three year prison sentence at this point. So you're 23 years old. You get your first prison sentence out here, adult, state prison. You get a three-year prison sentence. With a three-year tell of probation. Three years prison, three years probation. What was that prison sentence like for you? So I was young, and I always knew. So I'm going to take it back. I always knew. I started getting tattoos and stuff, right? I always knew I want to get my sleeves done. Mm. I want to be tattooed down. I'm going to go to prison. I'm going to make a name for myself there because I already been in juvenile prison. So I know what it's all about, right? Um, In my first three-year sentence, I end up meeting a really good friend of mine. Um, I'm going to tell you right now, man, he was a probate for the Aryan Brotherhood, right? And I become his youngster on the yard. Um, and I ended up joining a prison gang at that point. And, you know, what it looked like for me is 
they were really strict on no hard drugs, right? So at that point, I wasn't allowed to use hard drugs because if I was, I sure would have been. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was more scared not to use drugs that at fear. that point. That fear. Go ahead. So I end up getting out of prison. Um, I'm linked up with all these people that are hardcore people from prison, a prison gang, and they start a motorcycle club out on the streets, right? I'm three years on probation. Uh, and I joined this club and now that president that once was a probate for the Aryan brotherhood is a full brother now. And he's out of prison and he's the president of this motorcycle club that I'm now third in command of. You had the president, vice president, and I was the lieutenant. We're talking about a one percenter, right? Absolutely. One percenter motorcycle club that, uh, you know, I'm not going to mention any names, but, uh, you know, that was my lifestyle. And that became my family. You know why? Because they accepted me. Um, I'd been abandoned my whole entire life. People wrote me off. They didn't want anything to do with me. And these guys loved me. They would hurt people over me, right? They would be there for me. They were there for my kids, actually, man. Um, Really family-orientated people, but they were not, you know. um, And and I still love a lot of these dudes today. But at the end of the day, man, um, we had a code of honor that just isn't, something that reigns in my life today. Um, I loved it though. It was accepting. Now I felt like I belonged. I was in charge of people. I could tell people what to do, right? I ran shit, man. And I felt a sense of belonging and not only a sense of belonging, but I felt, I felt a sense of power. Um, I felt like I actually had some power and I might be in control of my life today. And one of our number one club rules was no hard drugs, live life on life terms. We don't extort our own people. We don't hurt women and children and we keep each other out of prison, right? So I, I really believed in that, man. And I really believed that I could stay sober as long as I had this club around me, even though we were drinking every single night, partying at the bars, taking pills, right? Smoking a little weed, that was okay. But the moment you take meth or any hard drugs, heroin, it's a wrap. You You're got done. you got a reprimand coming, man. They're gonna they're gonna uh, hurt you a little bit, rough you up, and if you can't get it together, you're really gonna get hurt, and you're no longer a part of that club. And I had a fear of losing that family, and so I kept you straight for a while. And I, and you know, I, during this period of time, so after you got out of that three year prison sentence, you joined the motorcycle club. I mean, you were out for seven years. And in this period of time, I just want everyone to know, he started out at a sober living halfway house, got his own place, bought a house, bought Harleys, had trucks. Um, I mean, you name it. He got introduced to the telemarketing game. And if you guys know anything about me, uh, shout out to the telemarketers out there uh, on Wolf that grind. Wall Street. Wolf of Wall Street, biz ops, yep. horrible industry, just uh, uh despicable. Taking old ladies <laughs> retirement funds, right? Horrid industry to be a part of. I truly believe that I got an amount of time I did based off the actions that, um, and I was only in it for a short period of time, but that period of time when I was, had that telemarketing company, it was, it was just unreal. Um, the pain that I have just caused on these families, but, um, and you know, so you were able to, but you're drinking, right? So we have this idea that, look, I'm functioning. I got a club, I got Harleys, I got money in the bank. Uh, you know, you didn't just work at a telemarketing company, you ran telemarketing companies. You were the boss there, boss in the club, the ego, the power, everything that comes along with that. But just like everything, it goes so good until it goes so bad. 
So during this downfall, because there's a downfall period, what happens during the, the end of that seven years? Well, at the end of that seven years is, man, it was wild, right? I have another, I had an, I had a couple more kids, two different baby mamas at this time. I mean, we're partying, clubs, club life, big orgies, all that, mm. right? Like it, it was off the hook, man. And I really uh, loved that lifestyle, man. I felt untouchable. So during the seven years, man, um, you know, I got introduced to Percocets Uh oh. and I had already been a heroin addict before Uh uh-uh. that was, that was where it started. Right. And I remember I took that first Percocet. It started off by me getting a tooth pulled. Mm. Um, and they gave me a bunch of Vicodins and my tooth hurt so bad for three weeks straight after they pulled it because they broke a bone inside and it was chipped. So it was trying to work its way out of my gums that I was eating pills for three weeks straight. And, uh, that's called dosing. Yeah. So then I get on these Percocets and I take one, a Perc 30 and it made me throw up, made me sick to my stomach. I couldn't stand it. I tried them a couple times. And at this point, you know, um, my friend comes over and tells me, chop one of those up and snort it up your nose and your stomach won't get upset. Mm. So I did it, man. And I was on my way. Back to prison. Back to prison. <laughs> right. Um, so, you know, and and I had a family, man. I had a daughter, Lillian, um, that I took well care of. Like you said, I had the house, I had the cars, I had the motorcycles. Lily had anything she could ever want. Right. She always had that. But, but in this time, let me remind you that I wasn't really good to my ex-wife either. You know, I had an ex-wife, Amanda, who, while she was pregnant, yeah, I thought by me providing money, that's providing for my kids and, and my wife. But little did I know that uh, I'm telling her, I'm going to go to the bar for an hour. I'll be right back. No big deal why she's pregnant. And I don't come home till four in the morning and I flip my car and wrecked it. And I have her hiding guns under the dumpster because the cops are coming. Right. I'm putting her in all these situations. I'm not using hard drugs, but my life is good today. Right. Just because I'm drinking alcohol. But I'm still doing criminal activities. I'm still harming my ex-wife right at this point, and I'm not being a man and showing up for, you know, at the end of the day. And, you know, like you say, love is an action word, and I realize that today, Um, but I wasn't showing love to anybody around me. I was selfish, self-centered, egotistical, and all I cared about was myself. And, you know, I thought, by me going to the bar, drinking every night, that that was, that was, I made it right. I was cured. I'm not an addict. Yeah. Look, look at me. I got got a Harley. Yeah. Yeah. I'm doing great. It, you know, we always talk about that. It's the alcoholic mentality. I could have all the material possessions. Don't get me wrong. I like material things and they do make me happy too. But what we're looking to find through recovery is internal happiness when I when we talk about that prison time we spent together and finding recovery and for me, aside from being away from my wife and daughter, that which was hard, super hard, um, but I had found internal happiness and freedom in prison with nothing. 
I'm talking about some honey buns and shit right now. I mean, I'm happiest I've ever been. Today, I got some material things that make me happy, but it's being present in the relationships in my life that truly make me happy. Um, and so ultimately, man, you end up back in prison. So you catch it in 2015, you catch a seven year prison sentence. What'd you go to prison for the, for the seven years? So for the seven years, once again, here we go. Uh, I caught two counts of aggravated DUI. I had drugs in my system. I got caught for theft of means of a stolen car again, and then two counts of possession of dangerous drugs. So once again, now I'm back in prison and burglary of a vehicle again. So now I'm back in prison on another seven or eight felonies. Um, but at this point, I was a little scared, right? Because I had an open plea from three and a half years to 16 and a quarter. Mm, um, open-ended. Open-ended. And I was very, very lucky to get the seven years with a four and a half year probation tail. I mean, you got love. I got love. Yeah. And so when we sit there for how, I mean, I'm sure you were in county for a prolonged period of time with all those cases and you're sitting there and they're talking 16, 20 years. I'm sure you have pleas that were over 20. For me, it was the same thing. 14 year plea. I sat there for a year and you got to face that and you don't have drugs and alcohol as a solution anymore. And you got kids out there and you got family out there. You're sober again. So what does that mean? You feel again, guilt, shame, embarrassment, remorse, regret. You're feeling all these things. And then you get sentenced and it's like, at least I got some closure. I know how much time I'm going to do. And so you start to transition now into going to prison. And then they tell you to roll up and then they get you on the bus. And then you find out you're going to stick them Steiner. Well, and the crazy thing about it was when I was in county, I found God again, right? Really? Um, and I was sober the whole time I was in county. And I thought that I had it figured out that I would never use drugs again. I got a seven year sentence. It's done. I got it. Like, right. All I needed was a little clean time behind bars, dude. And I got it. But as soon as I hit Steiner, I had some old friends, a couple club members, right. A couple other people that were on the yard. Um, people that were in my life from the streets that were running that yard. And the first thing they did, man, was come and bring me a gram of heroin and a gram of meth. Didn't even said, think twice. Said, sell some of this, man. Get you some shoes, some food, some hygiene, some store. Get you a TV. Get you a TV. Get on your feet. Right? We got you. And uh, I remember sitting there holding that dope thinking, I'm just going to sell it all. I don't yeah. got to use it. I got God in my life today. Yeah, again, yeah, right? God. I prayed my addiction away. Yeah, it right? didn't work like that. And uh, and it's safe to say that Steiner and Lewis Complex in Arizona is probably one of the toughest, other than Maury and, you know, Cimarron and some of those central. yards. Central unit. For a three-yard, that's one of the most live yards. If you had to say, and we, we both like to bet on sports a little bit, we're talking about over-under on bodies, dead bodies that you've seen in that time. If I say the number is six, would you say over six or under six? Uh, way over, man. Yeah. In a four-year that's one of the most dangerous yards in our prison system um, in Arizona. I did four years there and the amount of four years, there were 16 murders and I had five of my close friends get killed on that yard. Um, I mean, you're locked down for six months. They open the yard back up, they murder someone else. You're locked down again. Absolutely. And that's the cycle at Steiner. And so, you know, you're there, now you're getting high, you're, everyone you know runs the yards because you got, you know, everyone that you know, especially part of the club is influential people in prison and on the streets as well and with the gangs that they're associated with. And so you're stuck right back in that lifestyle. 
And uh, ultimately, man, Steiner leads to you finally somehow miracle happens and you get reclassed and you finally stay out of trouble long enough to drop your points and you hit a minimum custody yard. And during that period of time at Steiner, you actually learned how to tattoo. Self-taught tattoo. They kind of forced you. I remember you telling me this here. You're going to do this. (laughs) Right. Well, what that situation was is like at this point, I had nobody from the street showing me any love, really. I mean, certain people would send me money here and there. But for the most part, um, I was getting money from the streets and everybody I was getting money from the streets from I was lying to at that point. I was using it all for drugs. But I was drawing pictures and that was your hustle. The artwork I was doing, I was selling it. And, you know, the guys came up to me, the fellas, they said, man, if you could do artwork like this and shade on paper the way you are, you could tattoo. And I said, absolutely not. There's no way I could tattoo. And they said, you could tattoo. You're going to do a tattoo on me. Right. So, you know, I kind of got angry. I didn't know how to put the machine together, none of that. And I told him, all right, you want a tattoo? If I mess it up, it's on you. I don't care. Yeah. Right? Oh, well. And uh, I ended up doing that first tattoo, and it really came natural to me, honestly. Um, It was crazy. And they were like, I told you you could tattoo. Now keep practicing, right? And I kept going, man. And I just, by my third tattoo, I was tattooing people's neck, doing lettering work, like stuff that, Nobody should really be able to do at that point, but I picked it up like a natural. I don't know how I did it, but it's just a gift I have. One thing too, tattooing in prison is the gift and the curse because you're always busy. People pay you way up front, but the curse part of it is usually they want to pay you in dope. Yeah. (laughs) So I can always use dope. Not only that, you get tickets, man. You get in trouble. You get longer prison sentence by getting caught tattooing. Tattoo paraphernalia, tattooing tickets. How many do you got? I think I got about six of them. Six tattooing tickets. And that's that's why you were on Steiner for so long is because you kept getting in trouble, going to the hole, getting tattoo tickets. You're in the mix. But somehow, someway, you finally get reclassed and you end up at Florence North Unit. And that's where I meet you in 2018. Mm -hmm. Um, And so we run into each other. uh, How we started the first episode, part one, where we talked about running into each other and you doing, trying to sell me a diamond, the Fugazi and uh, you know, and then ultimately doing some really nice tattoos on some friends of mine that I known and then me getting some tattoo work um, mentioning recovery, but not forcing it on you still being there for you as someone to talk to. Um, and ultimately one day you come to me, man, after you've been coming around a little bit more and you say, you know what, dude, this recovery thing, you know, I think I want to give it a chance. And I said, you know, come to a meeting. So what when you came to that meeting at North Unit, and North Unit has one of the most amazing fellowships. We're known all over Arizona. North Unit Fellowship, shout out to all the North Unit guys. North Unit Recovery North, on yeah. Facebook group. Yeah, shout out to all the North Unit guys, man. And you know, to 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 be a part of that fellowship, man. I mean, I'm telling you, God was on that yard. Shout out, Miss Franz, um, and everybody that was there, Big Tom, uh, Rick, uh, Pepe, uh, John um bill shout out to all those guys who brought meetings to us christmas eve new year's day i mean these guys were here and they they had those doors open for us along with miss franz but what was that and i had the privilege of sponsoring you i was your sponsor for and still to this day um but what was that like what was the experience like for you um working the steps you want to share a little bit about that man so my experience working the steps you know i started to go to meetings 
I'm going to be real with you. In the beginning, I did not understand what anybody in that room was talking about. I kept coming back. I started to hear some things that I needed to hear. And working the steps was like a spiritual experience for me. And the reason I want to point this out is because when I got to get it all out on paper, we you always talk about we got to bring the dark to the light because when we bring the dark to the light, get it down on paper, it takes the power away from it, right? And for my whole entire life, I had all these things, all these resentments, all these fears, all these people that I just, you know, and I, I always played the victim, poor me, poor me, right? And I was able to get all these things out on paper and I was able to start actually healing from my past trauma. Hmm. That's what the steps did for me. It, it let me drop the bags of the baggage that I've been holding so long and start to feel free. I got a little bit of serenity in my life. I started to feel peace overflow through me even though I was still locked up in prison, right? And the most miserable, horrible place you could be, I felt free at that moment. And so when we look at step one, was it hard for you in step one to fully concede your innermost self that you're an alcoholic? Absolutely not. And it's the gift of pain and desperation. Because I remember when I when, when you first started to work with me, you were about $300 in debt. Sure, you hustled and you always paid your bills. But I mean, I'm talking about, I mean, you were the tattoo guy, again, gifting the curse. And you had all these bills. You were underway, dude. You were fucking tattooing and making brownies at the same damn time. Yeah. <laughs> Just to survive. You were, You had nothing. Barely staying well. Looked like a sucked up Safeway chicken. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I remember that. And... uh you know, so so a lot of times when we have that gift of pain and desperation, step one isn't very hard for us. Our life, we're powerless, checks out. Everything around me is unmanageable. It's hard to deny that. And I remember when we did steps two and three together, and I remember um, based off your, your father, really, um, you had a conception of God. So it made that a little bit easier. And when we talked about making the decision to put some footwork in, you started to put the footwork in right away and you started to experience some miracles right away in your life. And you started to experience the program. And like you talked about in steps four and five, the resentments, the fears, the sex inventory, and you did all these things, man. And, you know, what was it like after getting through four and five, you know, the mean potatoes of the program? What was that like for you? Like I said, that was the first time that I had started to really understand how to start picking up the pieces of my life. I started to feel serenity. I got to experience that, you know, I had all these resentments against all these people in my life and I wrote them all down on paper and talked about all the things that they did to me. But then I had to write down my part in it. Right. And if I could look back, I could play a part in every single resentment that I have to this day. Right. I might have had an abusive stepdad, but I went and egged his house and slashed his tires. Right. I egged him on, man. I, I did I did horrible things to him. I wasn't the most upstanding kid, right? And so um, when we look at that, you know, and and so when we talk about resentment being the number one offender in the big book, if you back up one sense, we said it says we considered its common manifestations. And so when I look at all my resentments, it's almost comical that I'm even mad at anyone, dude, but because I play a part in 100% of mine. And that part that we play and we all play is the lying, the cheating, the manipulating, the stealing, the getting high, the selfishness, the self-centeredness. 
And so it tells me today that the reason it's a number one offender, because if I'm still creating resentments today, it tells me that because I've collected the data through working a four step, that my disease is still manifesting itself through character defects. And if I live in that long enough, it's fatal because this thing wants me dead. And I mean, I remember you doing a thorough, I mean, we took some, some time. We were meeting, you know, sometimes twice a day we lived together. There was a period of time when a shout out to Vegas, shout out to Cody Mothershed, shout out to Corey O'Brien, uh, shout out to all the many John Jacks, all the many dudes that live with us um, during this Kyle Bruce, um, all the people that live with us during this period of time. And we had a hut, 14 people are in that hut and, nine of us were all, I sponsored all you guys. (laughs) So we were all in there, man. And uh, that was the type of environment that we lived in. And I mean, you started attending every single meeting, picked up a service commitment. Were you making coffee? Yeah. Making chair and meetings, chair and meetings, making coffee. I mean, I think you picked up some, a couple sponsees um, before. I mean, at step 10, people were already hearing what you had to say. They already wanted what you had. You were starting to figure some things out. I mean, you were, you were doing the Ronnie Allen levitating across the yard damn near because you were experiencing (laughs) all these, these miracles in your life. Um, You know, do you remember what it felt like to experience those miracles? I do. Um, I absolutely do. It felt like, literally everything had lifted off my shoulders and I had complete peace and serenity at that point. And I had purpose. You did. You found purpose. And that's what this thing's all about. Um, It says in the fifth step, illuminating every twisted character, every dark cranny of the past, withholding nothing. We could look the world in the eye. We could be alone at perfect ease. Our fears fall from us. We begin to feel the nearness of our creator Some of us may have had spiritual beliefs, but we now begin to feel like we're having spiritual experience. And I got to watch that happen in your life, dude. And I will never forget it. You know, but just like it talks about in step 10, what we have is a daily reprieve contingent on the maintenance of our spiritual condition. A reprieve is a stay from execution because this thing wants us dead. And if we rest on our laurels and we get complacent, we're liable to relapse again. And so that's ultimately what happened. And I want you to share a little bit about that. So again, we get complacent, rest on our laurels, and again, you ultimately, you relapse. So what was that like? So it was devastating to me, right? Because at one point in time, I I did get complacent. Um, But one of the things that I realized was in my fourth step, you talk about we did it thorough, we did it honestly, right? I left something out of my fourth step um, and also got complacent. Right. And it, and I knew what I had to do in recovery. It was devastating to me that I relapsed because I thought I once again had it figured out. Right. And I go on a little four month run. I'm not getting- to not to mention you live with your sponsor and you live with eight other guys in the fellowship in a sober hut. And I remember telling you one day when all of a sudden now you're fucking El Chapo again, street grams. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Hitting big. You have all the all the dudes still in active addiction coming over to our hut. Now I'm salty. Right. I got to watch my friend relapse who I was killing the game and that sucks. And I say, dude, please don't get high in the hut. If you, you I get it, dude, don't get high in the hut. And very next morning you're going to on your bed, getting high. And I'm like, oh, this little motherfucker, dude, you know, and, uh, you know, and it caused some friction between us. And ultimately we, I remember sitting on the bench and talking to you about it. And it was just like, dude, I get, I'm, I'm watching you die in front of me, bro. It's just, it's horrible. Not to mention the other guys that are in the hut. Um, shout out to Vegas. Um, and on the other guys who he was there for you. And we talked about these things and ultimately, man, we had to move you out the hut, dude. Yeah. And we moved you out the hut and you were salty about that. 
And, uh, you know, but you started to recognize some things. And this four-month run goes on for a period of time, almost until you leave, right? Yeah. You're starting, and, and shout out to Lee. Um, you had a guy who was very, very sick and almost died in prison. Um, is he still alive? No, Lee passed away. Oh, man. Rest yeah. in peace, Lee. And that was a very sad thing to watch someone die right in front of your eyes because the DOC prison system doesn't want to provide them with proper health care. Um, and you watch them die. And you actually moved from the other place across the yard to go take care of this man. Um, ultimately, he got granted clemency, which never happens. That's how you know DOC really fucked up. Um, and uh, and then one day, uh, you know, we're coming out of a meeting and they call you over the intercom and they say, you know, Justin Frakes, roll up. And they yeah. send you to Winslow. So you end up in Winslow and you're you're still not sober. You're trying to find your way back. Um, but what's that that time like in Winslow? So Winslow, you know, I'm maintaining for about the first month or so. I'm there, right? I'm not using. But I have no recovery. There's no recovery on the yard. There's no meetings. Um, and dope hits. You know, COVID ends up hitting the yard. The yard's locked down. And uh, I'm tattooing. I have a lot of store. I got a lot of money and I haven't been using for a month. So my locker's looking right. And I'm able, uh, maybe I could just do one, right? Um, you know, and at this point, I got about eight months left, nine months left on my prison sentence. So I go on like a little three, two, three month run there. Um, I'm getting high. And one of the things at North unit was you used to be able to go to the police or the cops, right? The DOC officers at North unit, if you told them you were strung out and you had a problem, they'd go help you get to a meeting or find a sponsor or something. You wouldn't get in trouble. Half dude, the time you, they call me over the intercom, right? You wouldn't get in trouble if you were honest with them and let them know. And I knew at that point that if I got out of prison, still getting high, that I was not going to make it. I was either going to die or come right back. Um, so I went to the yard office. I told the, the officers I was getting high and I need help. If you guys can't help me, I'm going to end up dying or I'm going to come back to prison. I need help. And I remember them getting really angry with me on this yard. And they said, there's no visitation. There's no work crews. One of our staff members has to be bringing in the drugs to you. We want to know who it is or else we're going to fuck you over right now, right? So they ultimately ended up taking my TV because it was altered with a the remote. They took away all my fundraiser blankets and everything because I didn't have a receipt for them. They put me in the hole under a 2A investigation, gave me a dirty UA, and I remember guys coming to the hole from that yard, and they were coming in the hole, and they were they were just talking bad about me, right? They were saying, you checked in, you left the yard. And at that point, like now, everything that I used to stand for on the prison yard, everybody that I used to talk shit about that used to do that, everything that I hated about that person, I had just become that person. And so we have those realizations, man, the same one, dude. I, I became the lowest of the lowest, dude. And that shit becomes fucking unacceptable, dude. And, and it became unacceptable to you. And they actually let you out of the hole right back onto the yard for every single person there had this idea of what you said or what you didn't said or what you had done. And they put you right back on the yard in front of a population with all these people. And it's safe to say you got a lot of eyeballs on you. 
Well, I mean, it is safe to say they did not put me back on that yard. Oh, it was a different yard? Yeah, they oh, okay. sent me to a yard on the same win- – it's a Winslow Complex yard. Oh, same complex. So yeah. the guys that are going to medical or telling the guys on that yard, they knew about me before I ever even got out of the hole, let's put it that way. And, and when I was sitting in the hole alone with nothing, no blankets, no TV, the only thing I had in the hole was a big book mm-hmm. and my paperwork, right? That's it, man. And I knew that I had Jason as my sponsor. I knew what I had to do in recovery. And this time, I took my recovery to the next level. In the big book, it says few are fortunate enough to be so situated they can devote all their time to these works. I was one of the few that was fortunate enough to devote all my time. I didn't have a job. I didn't have any bills to worry about. No kids. I put all my work and all my effort into my recovery. I studied that big book inside and out. When I hit that new prison yard, even though they were prosecuting me on the yard, it was humbling, right? Everybody on the yard hated me. They talked shit about me. And I brought recovery to that yard. There was no meetings. I brought meetings into that yard. I started sponsoring guys on that yard. There's guys, Nico, shout out to him, man. Love you, bro. He was on the yard with me. I started sponsoring him. He's working with people out here on the streets today in recovery, and he's sponsoring guys, and their sponsors are sponsoring guys, right? Brings a tear to your eye to get to see the miracles of recovery happen. Um, I, I put in the action. I got my feet moving. I put in the work, man, and I took my recovery to the next level. I got honest. Flip the dude, switch, the brother. You flip yeah. the switch. Shit I left out of my step four with Jason that first time, I got honest with a sponsee, dude, and got it out, right? Mm-hmm. No matter how I had to get it out, I got it out with another man in recovery, and I started to do the things that were outlined in that book. So you went hard in the paint and took your recovery to the next level. You used to tell me, bro, I just got to flip the switch. And I would always give you shit about that. You know, yeah. you're flip, oh, I'm going to get out when you were selling, when you relapsed and you were selling grams out the hut, the sober hut, to say the least. Yeah. You said, don't even worry, bro. When I get out, I'm going to flip the switch. And I'm like, oh, yeah, when you get out, you're going to all of a sudden flip the switch. But you flipped the switch the last seven months. You know, you started teaching your groups over there. You started meetings. You were sponsoring guys. You were carrying the message. And ultimately, when we do those things, it helps us. And so you get out February 1st of 2021. And you get and and you put yourself into another program and you do that and you go to New Freedom. So what was that like for you when you got out in February and you went and you touched down at New Freedom? Shout out to the guys in New Freedom. And what was that like for you? So for me, um, I didn't have to go do a recovery program, right? Um, I didn't have to go to an IOP, but uh, I wanted to, right? And uh, I'm going to tell you, Nico was one of the reasons because we were talking about it and he wasn't quite sure if he wanted to do it. So I said, look, bro, I'm your sponsor. You get out five days after me. I'm going to go there and I'll be there with you. Mm-hmm. Right. Buddy system. Buddy system. And and not only that, I knew that I needed some type of structure after doing a seven year prison sentence because I was scared to death to come out here to a whole world that completely changed. Sure. And so that's what that program is for. It's a stepping stone to get everything in line, to get reacclimated to society, to get your license, to get your credentials, to get a job, to learn job skills, to build a resume, to get your recovery in place and non-negotiables. And that's exactly what you did. Uh, and you became, you know, one of the green lanyards there, a mentor there, whatever color they were or they are. You became a mentor there. You were doing all those things. You were the shining star. You're teaching group. You're giving tours. You're doing all these things. But it's co-ed, brother. 
Oh yeah. It's co-ed and you fell in love. Oh yeah. You fell in love in the medline, brother. Medline. Medline love. Snuck up to the floor, fourth floor and looked like the Unabomber and got caught coming <laughs> out disguise. of female's room. Forgot to change his shoes. Bush league, dude. <laughs> got to change the shoes, brother. And ultimately, dude, you almost, you, I mean, you graduate, but they try, they, they didn't let you like experience a ceremony, which was, I understand it, but after everything you've done, I get it, dude. But ultimately, man, um, you were that guy there that was that shining example until you let, you know, you start thinking with the wrong head, but it happens and it happened. Um, and you're not in that relationship anymore. I hate to say I told you so. Um, but she knew you on another level. Remember you told me that? Yeah. Okay. And uh, anyways, um, so you get out of new freedom and, you know, I just want to take the end of this episode, man, to just acknowledge the fact that you are just killing the game. So you get out of new freedom um, and you you get a recovery job. You start doing landscaping because you got to make some money. You get your own apartment from new freedom. You got nobody on the streets. You got out to, to uh New Freedom with $250 to your name, and that's it. Been in prison seven years, got nothing, got nobody. And you're able to get your own apartment. You start doing landscaping, and I'm going to let you take it from there. So, yeah, I started off landscaping. I became certified peer and recovery support specialist in the state of Arizona. Um, And I really started to pick up the pieces, right? I got a car. I got an apartment. um, and, And one of the biggest blessings that's happened in my life today is I get to work with other people. I get to help other people. I started working as a behavioral health technician for a recovery center. Um, and, you know, I, I quickly proved myself. I moved up the ladder. I get, I get to see miracles happen every day with the people that come in with just the shirts on their back and get to watch them get some recovery, right? It's God working through me to touch other people. And, you know, now I got another promotion. Now I do all of their admin admins and I do all their community outreach. So I help get people into detox residential treatment center. I help people that are graduating residential treatment center, get into sober livings. And the blessings are amazing, man. The more I do God's will, the more I get blessed. And one of the biggest blessings we talked about in the beginning or the middle of the podcast, you know, I got my, my girl Colleen strung out on drugs is I'm with her again today. We reconnected and I get to be a positive influence on her life, right? Um, I get to be a person that could say, I love you today because love is an action word. And I show her those actions daily, Um, you know, and, and just the blessings, man, the blessings really are not money, the cars, the apartment. I'm moving into a three bedroom condo right now. I already, I have my daughter Hannah's going to be moving back with me. I'm getting custody of Sebastian here in about six weeks, right? And, you know, I have Macy with me. So I'm getting custody of my kids back, right? The blessings are my family, my friends, and people's lives that I get to touch along the way. Those are the blessings, getting to see these miracles every single day. And so not to mention, though, you are you got your license back that you haven't had for, what, 20 years? 20 years. Man. Got a license today. He started. He, we work for the same company, man. We get to work together. After everything we've been through, we get to work together. Shout out to Pat. Shout out to Vegas. 
um, Tony. Shout out to all the guys that we were on the yard together. Now we work together with the same company and we get experience that. You do business development, you manage sober livings, you got your, you got, I mean, there is so much going on on a professional level. It's unreal and how quick that's happened for you. You got your kids back in your life. You got a car, you got two cars, you got money in the bank, financial goals, you're achieving all those. Now to doing- start my own business, Sober Living, Soul Search Sober Living LLC, I got, you know. Sober Living's he's about to start opening up. And these are just some of the blessings of recovery. And I've only been out of prison for like a year and two weeks at this point, right? And, you know, and so when we talk about putting recovery first and everything second becomes first class, and that's just proven to be true in your life. But not to mention you sponsor many men. You have several sponsees today. You have multiple service commitments. Anytime I ever ask you to show up, your job is of service. Anytime, day or night, your phone rings. You're helping people get detox. Doesn't matter if it's Sunday, midnight. Uh, you're helping people get any any kind of resources that they need. You started a Facebook group that's just blown up, the North Unit Recovery Group. It's not just North Unit guys. It's the, the foundation is the North Unit Recovery, but it's a platform to reach out that you started that's got a ton of different members. Um, I mean, dude. The blessings in your life, dude, and I get to witness it, dude, and I like to think, my ego likes to think I played a big part in your recovery, but I know I've just played a small part in your recovery, but it's just unreal, just the life that you get to have today, dude, and I'm just grateful that I get to play a part in that, dude, and and see your kids come back, and see you win a DCS case, and see you uh, be a counselor, and see you help other men, and and to to have service commitments with you, and to to share this experience with you, dude, it's just unreal real it's it's nothing short of a miracle dude and it's his life it's my life it's caesar's life it's adam's life it's josh's life it's sean's life it's every single guy nico dude i get oh man dude that whole experience with you and winslow and him and now i've met him and get to see him and it's just oh man dude, i i just don't have the words for the love that i have for you um and just the the, the man that you are today after i mean if you've listened to this podcast the and everything that this man's been through, if he can do it, anybody can do it, you know, and I'm just extremely grateful to have you on here um, to share this moment with you. And, you know, I want you to say something to close it out. I just want to say that anybody out there that's struggling with addiction, you know, you don't have to do this alone, reach out. Um, That's one of the reasons I said my full name in this podcast is I want anybody to reach me at any time. And where can they find you at? They could find me on Facebook, the North Unit Recovery Group. I mean, they could find you pretty much anywhere, man. If you go on Facebook, you look him up or you look myself up, dude, and we'll do anything we can to help anyone. Absolutely. That's what it's all about. Uh, We love you. And uh, thank you for letting me be a part of this. Yeah, dude, it's been an extreme blessing to share this moment with you, dude. And, And, you know, I love you, dude. I consider you family and you know, I know this is just the beginning of our new life and our new journey together. And do we get to experience it together? Because that's what recovery is all about, dude. So thank you for being on the show.